I know you've been waiting months to have two cellos accompany you. I, I know that's what you've been living for, okay? <laughs> oh, just a reminder. Just a brief reminder of what happened some 230-plus years ago. When the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another and to assume among the powers of the earth a separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them, a decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to separation. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed, that whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or abolish it and institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. Prudence, indeed, will dictate that governments long established should not be changed for light and transient causes, and accordingly all experience has shown that mankind are more disposed to suffer while evils are sufferable than to right themselves by abolishing the forms to which they are accustomed. But when a long train of abuses and usurpations pursuing invariably the same object evinces a design to reduce them under absolute despotism, it is their right, it is their duty to throw off such government and to provide new guards for their future security. Such has been the patient sufferance of these colonies, and such is now the necessity which constrains them to alter their former systems of government. The history of the present king of Great Britain is a history of repeated injuries and usurpations, all having in direct object the establishment of an absolute tyranny over these states. And on it goes, and it actually lists those. That is, of course, from the Declaration of Independence. And it is partly that that we, because of that, we enjoy the freedom to come here and to worship our Heavenly Father and to do so in freedom. But in the midst of that, we are called to pray for those who are in authority over us. Today, so today in particular, we will be praying for those people that we have elected to serve us and to lead us. So let's go to the Lord now in prayer. Heavenly Father, who are we that we should live in, in a place where so many have sacrificed that we might be able to come on this morning at this time and worship you in freedom, that we might enjoy liberties and rights which stem from you, 
for you have created mankind with such, and we are endowed because you have given them to us. Therefore, none can take them away. Lord, you have seen fit in your providence to have us here in this nation at this time, that we might live out the things of Christ, that we might take what has been given to us by those who have gone before us, that we might walk in their footsteps to preserve it, but we also may use it for the furthering of your kingdom, that we may take these freedoms and liberties and use them to declare the wonderful truth of Jesus Christ. that we might live these things out in in acts of compassion and mercy to those around us, that we might read these things, that they might penetrate our hearts, Lord, that they might consume us, that they would flow from our every word in our every action. Lord, we come today and are mindful of those who lead us in this nation. They are servants. They are placed there by the body that has elected them, and we pray for them, Lord, for their wisdom and their insight. We pray for the mayor of Huntsville, Tommy Battle. We pray for our representative here, Mo Brooks. We pray for our senators from Alabama, Richard Shelby and Jeff Sessions. Lord, we pray for the entire House of Alabama and Senate, that they may all serve with wisdom and understanding. We pray for the House of Elected Representatives in Washington. They come from so many different places across this country, Lord, and elected by people just like us. We pray that they would remember why they have been placed there, that they would act and pursue the things of righteousness and justice. Lord, for the Senate, and the same thing, as they represent each state, that they may remember why they are there, to serve and to lead, that they would pursue what is right. They would pursue what is right according to the inalienable things that come from you. Lord, we pray for our president and those who advise him, that they would have the wisdom that is necessary to lead this country, to act in ways which are rights and which are just, and pursue the things that you would place before them. And Lord, we pray for for each of us that we would be mindful of these things. We are called to lay before you those who are in authority over us and pray for them and ask your hand of mercy and grace upon them. Lord, that their hearts would be filled with the things of Christ, that you would bring into their lives, Lord, the message of Jesus Christ that you would take those hearts that are far from you and draw them unto yourself. Take those eyes, Lord, that are blinded to the truth of Jesus Christ and open them, that their actions and decisions might be reflective of your grace and your mercy, that we all might pursue the things of Christ. Lord, you have brought us here today that we might pray in this fashion, that we might worship you, that we might remember the great sacrifice of those who have gone before us. Come this day upon our hearts and upon our minds, that we would be reminded of this, Lord, that we would live in a manner worthy of those who have gone before us, and in a manner worthy of the grace and the love of Jesus Christ that has been bestowed upon us. 
So, Lord, we come to you, not on our own efforts, not on our own accord, but because you have drawn us unto yourself, and Christ has done the work for us. So we pray the prayer that he taught us as we say. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. It is our privilege to come here today and to worship the Lord. So I invite the ushers to come this time, that we may continue to worship him as we give of what he has blessed us with.
Heavenly Father, in your great and glorious plan, you have worked your will in our lives and you have brought us here for this time that we might hear the things of Christ, that we might rejoice in the works that we have seen you work within this world and within our own hearts, and that, Lord, that we might hear the call that you extend to us. We pray, Lord, that these gifts and offerings would be used for the same things, that others might hear your voice, know the movement of your spirit within their hearts, that their lives, too, might know the things of Christ and be forever changed. We ask this in his name. Amen. Please be seated.
right, let's open our Bibles this morning to Hebrews chapter 1. We are going to be in several different places, so we just have to be ready to get there. And I'll I'll begin reading uh, that verse when we arrive there uh, as we go through our message and see what the Lord has for us in these different places. So before we begin, let's pray. Lord, as we come to you today and as we read your word in various places, open our hearts to it, Lord, and fill us with it that it would dwell within us, that, that by the power of your Holy Spirit we would have understanding, that we would see how we are to live these things out. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, about ten days ago, I was in uh, Denver, Colorado, for the EPC General Assembly, which was a great time. It's uh, uh, when the first time I went there was six years ago, and there were about 400 people there. This year there were some 1,200 people there it has really just blossomed. It's always good to go, and it's great fellowship time and, and great worship. And, and um, they do some business, but uh, the, some of us have other agendas when we go to national meetings. Uh, and one of these agendas was to go out with some of my friends that I only see once a year at General Assembly. And some of us went out to a restaurant, which is called Elway's. Now, John Elway was the Denver Bronco franchise quarterback for years, and he has remained in there, and he has a string of restaurants, and they are called Elway's, and they are steakhouses. Now, when we went and sat down, they brought us out the silverware, and I, I declare, this steak knife, you could have amputated your leg with, okay? It was huge, and I'm looking at it, going, gosh, okay? Well, I looked at the menu, and of course, I've ordered a salad, and... Uh, to start with, okay, and, and, and I ordered this piece of meat that, that was cut from the cow like this. Uh, it was huge. Now, I knew, understood when they brought this piece of prime rib to me, I understood why I had such a knife, okay, because it was huge and it was thick. And, and I, you know, I, I like my meat on the raw side, so it was red and it kept trying to crawl off the plate and I had to stab it and bring it back in, and, okay. Now, my doctor says I should eat this incredible, just a few ounces of red meat every week, okay? Just a few ounces. I have met my quota through December, okay? I mean, this was, was a big piece of red meat. But, you know, it was a steakhouse, and when you go to a steakhouse, you order steak. Well, today I want to welcome you to the Central Presbyterian Steakhouse, and meat is on the menu this morning. I want you to be ready for this, okay? Now, I distinctly remember a time in my life when I would describe myself when when spiritual meat was not that important to me. I was kind of a milky Christian. I was a whole milk Christian, but a milky Christian nonetheless because I wanted to focus on Jesus. You've just got to communicate them to them Jesus and their life will be changed. I thought that doctrine and theology was for those who had lost their faith, okay? Now, I, 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 that is a quote from me, and my wife will attest to that. Now, me, who, who, I can sit in my office now, and I can read that obscure theology that anybody else here, in 10 minutes, you're going to be scratching your head or asleep, and I just love to read it. I love to read it. But understand, 
Jesus Christ is of the first importance. Nothing else happens in your life unless you understand who Jesus Christ is and your life has been changed by his grace and by his mercy. But I thought in my life at one time, well, whose life has ever been changed by understanding the intricacies, the theological intricacies of the virgin birth? I mean, yes, I believed in the virgin birth. It was important, but I really couldn't explain it to you. Well, as I look back on those years, as I said, I was kind of a milky Christian, and, and it wasn't really that important. But as I've, I've grown, I understood that when you become a believer, you can drink that milk for a while. But the Lord says you've got to move on to real food. You've got to get down to the steakhouse and begin to chew on some things. Okay? And that is what we are called to do. If we're going to face the arrows that Satan is going to fire at us, we have to be, we have to be grounded in God's word. And we can't just say, well, you know, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life and Jesus is my Savior. That's all I need to know. Yes, that's where you start. But if you stay there all your life, you'll be drinking milk and it'll be milk, but it may only be 2%. Okay? And the Lord wants you to be eating steak. Now, you tell me, well, Rand, I'm a, a professional in my field, and uh, I have to know everything there is about my field. How much stuff, other stuff am I supposed to cram into my brain uh, about my faith? Well, I understand it is important to be good in your field and to know everything you can. I mean, who wants to drive over a bridge that was designed by somebody who failed high school trigonometry? Okay? Uh, not, not me, not me. Now, but we understand that God calls us to understand who he is. He calls us to feast on his word and to grow in the things of Christ. And we are to believe the things of scripture and to, to dig into them. Now, remember when Paul preached, and he had a couple of these times where he went out and he would interact and preach and teach and answer questions and go back and forth for 12 hours at a time. Okay? So it wasn't like he was preaching Daniel in the lion's den for 12 hours. He was into the grass. He was into the meaty things. He was into the real things of Scripture. Uh, so does God expect everybody to be at Paul's level? Well, no. But if you're, you've been a believer, and you've been a believer for 10 or 20 or 40 or 60 years, and you're still studying Daniel in the lion's den... It's time to get to the steakhouse. So for the next 20 minutes, I'm going to give you a crash course on doctrine. And you, you, some of you are going, this isn't doctrine for those who have lost their faith? Did you just say that? No. Next week, we're going to begin our study of Jude, the Acts of the Apostates. Now, it's important that we do that to see the struggle that the church will have from the ascension of Christ until his return. We will struggle that entire time with error and, and false teachings and things like that. And, but to do that, we have to know the right teaching. And this is a crash course. Okay? Um, I get to sit in my office and read theology all the time. You don't. Or you can if you like. But I, you know, if you're designing bridges and reading theology, I'm concerned that the bridge will fall down. So I'm going to give you the short version of a lot of these doctrines, and this is the fundamental things. These are not really the real deep things. 
These are the fundamental things that every believer ought to know. Now, I have seven statements this morning, and by the hand of providence, uh, there are seven essentials in the EPC. So you can draw your own conclusions from that. Okay? Number one, we believe in one God, the sovereign creator and sustainer of all things, infinitely perfect, eternally existing in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's a good foundational statement. Okay? Now, the children's catechism begins this way. Who made you? And the answer is God. What else did God make? All things. Okay? That's good if you're in fourth grade or second grade, but that's not enough for us. We need to understand a little bit more. Now, the important question, for, and I'm going to assume for those of us who sit in here today, is not, is not does God exist? We're going to assume that he does exist. But the question is, do we know who God is? Do we know his personality? Do we know his identity? Do we understand his nature? The Lord's Prayer begins with a statement that says, that deals with the holiness of God's name, hallowed be his name. Now, remember that when Moses was conversing with God and he said, if they ask me who sent me, what should I tell them? And the answer was, I am, I am. It is a statement of God's being. Okay, we understand that God is eternal. Uh, that we can't get our minds around that because we are not. We had a very specific time of beginning. The moment of conception, you began. God never had that beginning. And as we'll see in a little bit when we deal with Jesus Christ, John 1, 1 literally means in the Greek, before the beginning began, the word was. Now, get your mind around before the beginning began. Uh, it just is, okay? I can't explain it any greater, than, any clearer than that. It just is. Now, this is a God who reveals himself in the created order. Romans chapter 1 is very clear that people are without excuse. They can look at the created world and, in which God has revealed himself, and they can come to the conclusion that there is something beyond themselves that will entitle God just from the created world around us. So this is known, so God is known generally in the created order. God also reveals himself specifically throughout history with what we'll call redemptive events. He speaks from the mouths of his prophets. He acts in ways that clearly come from outside of the natural order of things. Seas do not, rep- do not part revealing dry ground just at the moment when the people of God are about to be massacred by their enemies. That comes from God alone. Now the mer- most perfect revelation of God is his son. That's what brings us to Hebrews chapter 1. Jesus Christ, is the Son of God, is the second person of the Trinity. It is the most perfect revelation of God in this world. So the first couple verses of Hebrews chapter 1. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the world, and he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. That is the Son of God. 
the perfect example of God in this world, the final revelation of God into this world, the second person of the Trinity. Now, Christians are not deists. We do not believe in a supernatural being who got things going and then sits passively and watches us. He is interactive in this world. We are Trinitarian. We believe in the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, one God in the form of three persons. Okay, You cannot... Be an orthodox believer and not be Trinitarian. The Trinitarian doctrine is one of the the fundamental doctrines of the Christian faith. Now turn over to Colossians chapter 1. Jesus Christ is the Son of God, not one of the sons of God, not one of the many sons of God or the two sons of God, depending upon uh, other uh, errant teachings. Uh, There's one teaching that says Jesus and his brother uh, Lucifer uh, were both created by God. That is certainly not clear in Scripture anywhere. But all the power of the Father rests in the Son. All of the power of the Father rests in the Son. Remember, Jesus says in the Gospel of John, if you've seen the Son, you have seen whom? The Father. Okay? Jesus says, I only have come to do the will of Him who sent me. Okay? Now, Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 15. This speaks specifically of Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have created by have been created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself might come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. This is Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, the only begotten Son of God. Let me make it simple for you. You have to believe in the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You have to believe that Jesus is the only begotten Son of God. If you don't believe these things, you are outside of the realm of Christianity. Now, Jesus was a real person. His life and death are very well attested to from Scripture, from history, by credible and numerous witnesses. And he attributed all of his actions to the power of the Father and the will of the Father. And even it's it's interesting to note that even the Pharisees did not did not doubt his power because you know they tried to question it and, and, and argue against it, but they could not doubt that that guy was dead and now is alive, that that guy was blind and now he could see, that that hand that was withered like this is now clearly. Healed. They could not doubt his power and authority. Now, the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. Nothing of the presence of the Holy Spirit is really seen today except the effects. In the Old Testament, we see the Holy Spirit is like the wind, the rucha. It blows where it wants. Who can tell where, where it comes from? That is equating the Holy Spirit with how the wind works. He hovers above the waters of creation. 
In the Old Testament, men responded to the presence of the Holy Spirit with fear and trembling. Jonathan Edwards writes, The Holy Spirit, he wrote of the Holy Spirit, an extraordinary sense of the awful majesty and greatness of God as of a flame infinitely pure and bright so as sometimes to overwhelm souls and body, a sense of the all-seeing, piercing eye of God. That was the presence of the Holy Spirit. In the New Testament, we find the work of the Holy Spirit in the regeneration of the sinner. Now, if you're in Colossians, go ahead a couple pages to Ephesians chapter 2. The Holy Spirit is at work in the regeneration of the believer at that moment of justification uh, where our lives are forever changed. And he is also part of the ongoing work of sanctification, that growing in grace and growing and living it out more and more each day. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And we've covered this before. Dead people don't do anything for you. When you're dead, you're dead. Okay? In which you formerly walked, according to the course of the world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working on the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath even as the rest by nature that is by our nature we were children of wrath but this is a great but but God because he owed it to us no but God because he was lonely and wanted company no but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. God made us alive. Dead, made alive. Why? Because of the rich mercy and his great love with which he loved us with. He has sent, remember Jesus said, I'm going to leave, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to you, and they called the Holy Spirit the what? The Comforter. Not the smoother outer of all our problems, but the Comforter in the midst of all those things. Question number one. Number two, Jesus Christ, the living Word, became flesh through his miraculous conception by the Holy Spirit and his virgin birth. He who is true God became true man, united in one person forever, He died on the cross, a sacrifice for our sins, according to the scriptures. On the third day, he arose bodily from the dead, ascended into heaven, where at the right hand of the majesty on high, he is now our high priest and mediator. All these statements are clearly laid out for us in scripture, so I'm going to attempt to give you the short version of their importance. Jesus is the same substance and the same essence as the Father who for all eternity has been at the place of power and authority, that is the right hand of the Father. He left that position, became flesh, that he might experience all the forms of trial and temptation and struggle and hardship that is common to every human and yet be without sin. God did not choose a good man and make him Christ. That would be adoptionism. That is wrong. 
but it is his one and only son, the word, became flesh by being born of a virgin, conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit, not by the will of man. And in this way, he was a hundred percent God and a hundred percent man. Now, how do you get that? I don't know. See, in the, in the great theological realm, theologians have this term. It's called, it's a mystery. Okay? And that's what we punt to when we say, describe for me the Trinity. How can you have one God in three persons? The Father coming from the Son, the Holy Spirit coming from the Father and the Son, all three being eternal, separate beings, yet one God. It's a mystery. <laughs> I love that. Okay? How do you get 100% God and 100% man? It is. It's just a mystery. If we look at Scripture from the earliest pages, we find that sin entered the world through the actions of one man, and we are all tainted by this sin. Okay? As Reformed believers, we believe in that T in the tulip, total depravity. It doesn't mean I'm as bad as I possibly can be. It means I'm tainted from here to here by sin. And there's nothing in me that searches after God. He has to come and get me. It's that sin that keeps me, that sin that alienates me from God. Well, that sin is covered through the shedding of blood. Now, in the Old Testament, we know that the shedding of animal blood was given, but it was imperfect. They had to make sacrifices again and again and again. Only the perfect blood of the perfect sacrifice would cover our sin. And that perfect sacrifice was the Son of God who left the right hand of the Father, came and took on the form of a man in this world. Perfect atonement required the spilling of perfect blood untouched by sin. Now, you think, well, there are so many of us, it must have taken the Son of God to cover all this sin. No. Randy's sin was so bad, and the only answer to Randy's sin as one single individual was the spilling of the perfect blood of the Son of God. Okay? If there was one person... And for that one sinful person to be reconciled with God, it still would have taken the death of his son to do so. Now, why? Couldn't, have God found, couldn't God have found another way to do it? He chose this fashion in which our sins might be cleansed and we might be reconciled with him. So the God who sent his son to die is also the God who has power over death. So Christ was raised on the third day, same body that went in is the body that came out of the grave. This is no spiritual resurrection. This is no, well, he was only unconscious. None of that. He was dead. He was buried. On the third day, that body came out of the tomb. It was raised by the power of God. Therefore, on the day of the Lord's choosing, when he sends his son back, our dead bodies will come out of the grave as well. Number three, turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. Well, wait, 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 stop, stop. Stay in Ephesians. Go to Ephesians 1. Since you're there, I'll, I'll read Peter for you. Number three. The Holy Spirit has come to glorify Christ and to apply the saving work of Christ to our hearts. He convicts us of sin, draws us to the Savior. Indwelling our hearts, he gives new life to us, empowers and imparts gifts to us for service. He instructs and guides us into all truth and seals us for the day of redemption. I'll read uh, 1 Peter and then we'll go back to Ephesians. 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved for you in heaven. Now Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 11. Just to reiterate this, Also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who were first to hope in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In him also, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed with him with the Holy Spirit of promise who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory the Holy Spirit is given to us like an engagement ring okay this is a pledge of the rest of my life with you well the Holy Spirit is given to us by the Heavenly Father as a pledge of the fulfillment of his promise of the inheritance that is kept safe for us that was delivered to us through Christ and we will experience it in fullness when we arrive in heaven at the moment of justification at the moment of justification when you are saved then the merit of Christ is imputed to the believer. You have no righteousness of your own. Christ has no sinfulness of his own. His righteousness is imputed into us. We are forever changed. It is a righteousness not of our own. It is from him and him alone. Now, that happens in an instant. The process of sanctification is the work of the Holy Spirit and us in some strange agreement, okay? I face temptation. The Holy Spirit empowers me to overcome that temptation. I look at that temptation, and I hear the the Holy Spirit work in my heart, and I go, well, I'm going to give in to temptation. But that does not lessen the effect of the Holy Spirit and His power. It is there for me to rely upon. So it is a question of my will and the work of the Spirit as I grow in the things of Christ. The process of sanctification, you know, and I've used this before. If you've seen it on a graph, you become a believer here, you are instantly changed. Here is your life of growth in Christ. Now, today, you're growing fast. Tomorrow, you're sinking like a rock. Okay, but over 20 years, we should see this pattern of growth if we were going to look at the big chart. That you grow more and more Christ-like as you understand more things of his word, conform your life more to his teaching. We have to strive every day to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, scripture says. All right, number four, being estranged from God and condemned by our sinfulness, our salvation is wholly dependent upon the work of God's free grace. God credits his righteousness to those who put their faith in Christ alone for their salvation thereby justifies them in his sight. Only such as are born of the Holy Spirit and receive Jesus Christ become children of God and heirs of eternal life. Again, let me make it simple. John 14, 6, do you remember that? I am the way and the truth and the life and no one gets to the Father except through me. Those are the words of Jesus. He doesn't say I've made a gazillion ways to get to the Father and I'm just one of them. He doesn't say, I've made five ways. 
And they would be the five great religions of the world. And they all will lead to eternal life in the Heavenly Father. He does not say that. He says there's one way to get to the Heavenly Father. And that is through me, his son. And then I'll just reiterate some of what we read in Ephesians. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of the world. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved through faith, and that is not your own doing. It is a gift, not a result of works, so that no man can boast. Faith is given to us. Okay, If I had my own faith, if I could produce enough faith to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, then my faith would be a work and I could boast that I had enough faith to believe and you didn't. So I'm going to heaven and you're not. That's not what it says. It says God gives you that faith. It is his work and his work alone. No one is saved except through the life, blood, work, and faith in Jesus Christ. Now what does that mean? If you're not a Christian... You're toast, theologically speaking. Okay? You will forever bear the punishment that is due your own sin if you do not repent and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Now, this doesn't make sense to the world. There are well-meaning, hard-working, nice, compassionate people who do not believe in Christ and they're not going to heaven. And there are selfish, short-tempered believers who are. Now, why anybody, with all the joy and the grace and the mercy that is available to them, be short-tempered and selfish, I don't understand. But that is the way that it works. Believers are not perfect. We are never perfect. Salvation is given to us and is eternally guaranteed and secured by the work of Christ alone. Failure to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved means you are eternally lost. Now, please remember, God is not unrighteous because people go to hell. God is gracious because not everybody goes, because we all deserve it. Scripture is very clear. No, there is no unrighteous, not even one. We all deserve to go there. It is God's mercy to save some. Number five. The true church is composed of all persons who, through saving faith in Jesus Christ and the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, are united together in the body of Christ. The church finds her visible yet imperfect expression in local congregations where the word of God is preached in its purity, the sacraments are administered in their integrity, where spiritual discipline is practiced, and where loving fellowship is maintained. For her perfecting, she awaits the return of the Lord." Church is made up of two parts. The visible church. Here you are. We're the visible church. We've come to church on a Sunday. We are meeting. We are the visible church because we can see everybody. Invisible church, there's only one person, one person, who knows the visible church, and that is Jesus Christ. I don't know your hearts. You don't know mine. Okay? It is not our job to go around and examine people. And say, I don't think you're really part of the invisible church. I don't think you're really saved. I think you're faking it. It's not our job to do. You're part of the visible church. We rejoice in that. But understand, the invisible church, only Christ knows that. 
Those people's names are written in the Lamb's book of life. They are truly saved by Christ. It will be comforting for you to know that those who gather in the visible church and even those in the invisible church, we can be weak and feeble and fickle and hypocritical. And and remember, we await the perfecting by his return. There is not a single perfect person in this church outside of Jesus Christ. If you go down to the Methodist church, there's not a single perfect person there. If you go down to the Church of Christ, there's not a single perfect person there. The Episcopalians, the same type of thing. We are all sinners in the need of salvation. And the church will not be full of perfect people until Christ returns. What will we look like? I don't know what a perfect person looks like, you know? But we'll be perfect then. Christ is perfect. Put your faith in him. Don't put your faith in me. Don't put your faith in the person next to you. Put your faith in Jesus Christ. Number six, Jesus Christ will come again. When? Soon. I, I know. I'm, I beat that India. I beat that India. And he will do so personally, visibly, and bodily. You cannot miss the return of Christ. You hear about this. Did you know that Christ returned and he came to, to the mountaintop in South Korea? Or he's this uh, young boy living in, the, in Jordan right now? No, no. When Christ returns, nobody can miss him. Now, Am I a flat earther in the sense that we would all be able to see him because we'll all be on the flat earth? No. The earth is round. When he returns, we will see him if he returns in our lifetime. The people in Russia will see him. The people in Antarctica will see him. How is that possible? It's a mystery. Okay? But if he can create the world, he can come back in a way in which everybody will see him all at one time. Now, it doesn't matter whether you're pre-trib or mid-trib or post-trib or rapture or no rapture or ah or post or pre. Those things really don't matter in salvation. It matters that you believe that Christ will return because that's what he said he will do. Number seven, last one. The Lord Jesus Christ commands all believers to proclaim the gospel throughout the world and to make disciples. That is the command. The the command is not to go. Go is an assumption in, in the Greek language. The command is to make disciples. Make disciples. Our salvation is not something that we keep to ourselves. It is not something that I cling to and I protect and I take home and I don't let anybody else see it. It is something that I wear out here on my sleeves. Okay, Salvation is meant to be given away. We were created and saved for his purposes and for the things he determined for us to do before the foundations of the world. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Before you were born he had good works for you to do once he drew you unto himself and changed your life. To not do those things is to be disobedient. And I refer you to number five. The church is full of disobedient people. I told you it was a crash course. Okay? And we have crashed doctrine today. Does the Lord expect you to be an expert in the field of theology? But no, remember, this is basic. This is fundamental to what we believe. Because those who will stand against the church 
are pretty good at taking half of what Scripture says and using it against believers who don't know all of what Scripture says. They are good at saying, well, my favorite example, if, well, what do you do with that passage in the Old Testament that says if your children are disobedient, you take them to the elders and they take them to the gates of the city and stone them? Okay? Now, some half-intelligent non-believer may challenge you with that. What are you going to say? Call Randy. Okay? No, 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 they want the answer. They want the answer. Scripture says, Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and respect. We're not going to argue anybody into heaven. We are going to live it. We are going to share it. We are going to demonstrate the grace that Christ has placed in our hearts to them. You must know and be ready to defend what you believe, for we will see in the coming weeks apostates abound, and they always will until the coming of Christ. So let's pray. Lord, your, your word is simply so rich. It is so full of things, lifetimes, generations have been spent studying your word, and yet we are still feasting upon it. Lord, we, we simply stand on the shoulders of those who have gone before us and done this great homework all the way back to the words of Paul and, and, and the words of Christ and the words of the Old Testament prophets and of Moses. And to your revelation, you have given this to us so that our hearts and minds might be full of it, that we might live these things out. There is a joy and a peace And a fulfillment that comes only in your word that the rest of the world simply does not know. Nor will they ever understand it until their eyes are open to the things of Christ. Lord, we pray that we would be the instrument of the proclamation of the things of Christ to some. That through our lives and through the words that we speak that points them to scripture and the things of Christ that their hearts might be changed in the same way that you have changed us, with that same saving grace that you have bestowed upon us. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Come thou fount of every blessing, tune my heart to sing thy grace. Let's stand as we sing 318, Come thou fount of every blessing.
hope you heard and saw in those words so many of the things that we covered today. Remember, hymns were written really to teach the things of Scripture in the old days. They were written so that we might understand this. Take and seal it. Seal it for the courts above. Power of the Holy Spirit. I'm prone to wonder and I feel we're all hypocrites. But the Lord is gracious and merciful to us. Oh, how great a debtor I am to your grace. Heavenly Father, let your grace bind us like a fetter. Bind our wandering hearts to you, that we might be forever known as belonging to you. That the actions of our lives, the words of our hearts, would demonstrate the lordship of Jesus Christ over us. Send us out, Lord, that we might live these things out and always be ready to give a reason for the hope that lies within and to do so with gentleness. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.